This is The Sidebar for the week of June 23, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. There are not a lot of minds out there to change. And when that's the case, how you draw these lines is deeply consequential. Our guest this week is the author of a book on congressional gerrymandering, David Daly. We talked with him about Republican efforts to carve out districts that have helped the GOP. David Daly, the subtitle of your book is Why Your Vote Doesn't Count. We should point out the FCC will not allow us to say the full title. Why? <laughs> yes, indeed. It's rat and it rhymes with duct. Um, I'm sure your viewers can probably figure out the title from that. It is a funny story um, in that in 2015, when we were putting this book together, folks thought that a book about gerrymandering and redistricting was possibly a boring topic. Can you understand that? (laughs) Um, This was what made your eyes glaze over in eighth grade civics class. So we had to come up with something that grabbed folks' attention. um, And now suddenly gerrymandering is on the front page of every newspaper in the country, and we probably do not need as provocative a title to uh, get folks' attention. Uh, the nature of our political system has uh, has driven home especially the with the, of this topic. Well, especially with the Supreme Court now taking up the issue as well later this year. These yes. two sentences pretty much summarize what the book is all about. You write the following. Our election system is infected. The rot starts with state legislative districts and then rigged congressional lines. So walk us through what you have learned. Well, we have essentially a very closely divided, highly polarized country, and yet all of the political power is in the hands of one party, the Republican Party, at both at the state level, where they control 69 of of 99 legislative chambers across the country, and then in Washington, where there is a hammerlock on the presidency and also on the Congress. Um, And really, I set out to try to understand why. What interested me in this topic was in 2012, Democrats win the White House, Barack Obama is reelected. The Democrats hold on to the, the U.S. Senate, and I couldn't understand what had happened in the U.S. House, where Republicans held on to a 234-201 majority. Um, it turns out the Democratic candidates in the aggregate got 1.4 million more votes than Republican candidates in 2012, but that wasn't enough to change control of the the body. Um, And it brought me to a really audacious and fascinating Republican strategy called REDMAP, which is short for Redistricting Majority Project, which Republican strategists launched in a very far-reaching and comprehensive way after getting wiped out in 2008. So their response to Obama's first election to the Democratic supermajority in the Senate in 2008 to Democrats holding on to the House was to understand 
that the next election in 2010 was a very influential one for ways and reasons that often fly under the radar. Every 10 years, we redraw all of the state legislative and congressional lines in the country after the census. If you could control the redistricting process, these Republican strategists understood, you could redraw the country and take great a partisan advantage as a result. So they focused on a state-by-state strategy in order to take control of state legislative chambers in states that were likely to gain or lose a seat in the 2010 census, where there would be reapportionment and all the maps would be up for a drawing. This is often called gerrymandering. It goes back to the founding of the Republic. Folks have been doing it for a long time. The gerrymander in 2010 is so fundamentally different, they ought to come up with a different word for it, because it is the, the partisan intent is uh, – uh, politicians have used uh, this process, and both sides have used this process for a long, long time in order to gain an extra seat or two, in order to uh, try to lock in an advantage, to get rid of someone in the party who might be a pain in the butt. Um, what the Republicans do is reimagine the gerrymander in an altogether modern new way. They set out to take control – of every seat at the table when these lines are being drawn by state legislatures, largely in blue states and in purple states. Um, And then the following year, they, with the help of very sophisticated new mapping software, with the help and advantage of new computer technologies, and with incredible advances in big data, So you combine everything we know about voters, you combine that with the power to draw these lines, and what you have is a a recipe for the kind of gridlock and dysfunction and polarization and hardened partisanship. All of this works together. It's a massive accelerant, and it's done a great deal of harm to our politics. You have a number of examples, David Daly, which I want to drill down on. But first, take us back to November of 2008. And one of those Republican strategists, Chris Jankowski, dejected because Barack Obama winning overwhelmingly in a number of Republican areas, winning the presidency. He reads a piece by Adam Nagorny of The New York Times and thinks what? Suddenly it dawns on him that redistricting can be reinvented redistricting can be their pathway back to power. Republicans did not have to be depressed in 2008. The 2010 election offered an immediate pathway back if Republicans had a plan. And what they did is they went state by state and they looked at the redistricting rules. Um, And every state does it a little bit differently, but at the time, Essentially, 40 of the 50 states give the state legislature the primary roles when it comes to drawing these lines. Um, So uh, Jankowski and the strategists at something called the Republican State Leadership Committee took a look at Pennsylvania, 
at Ohio, at Michigan, Wisconsin, North Carolina. Um, and they studied the laws in these states and said, okay, if we can target 107 state legislative seats in 16 states, we could tip control of enough chambers to give ourselves the only seats at the table when it comes down to drawing 190 of the 435 congressional seats. And that's exactly what they pulled off. They raised $30 million and went after incredibly focused state legislative targets in order to take control of these chambers and push them in their direction. A lot of these chambers were super close at the time. So it was four or five seats. It was actually one seat in Pennsylvania. It was only a handful in Ohio, a handful in Michigan, very tight in Wisconsin. And state legislative races don't cost that much money to play in. So you could go into Pennsylvania with a million dollars, target six key districts, come in in the last six weeks of this campaign with largely negative ads, drop them on the state legislators who never saw it coming. It was too late for them to respond. It's already a really good Republican year, and they picked up exactly what they needed to do in all of these states to lock in control for a decade. And if you look at at the 2012 elections, in all of these targeted states, Democrats rebound. They have a big year in 2012. They get more votes for Congress in Michigan and in Pennsylvania, more votes for state house candidates that are Democrats in Ohio, Wisconsin, North Carolina, um, Michigan and Pennsylvania again. Republicans take huge majorities in all of these states. 13 of the 18 congressional seats in Pennsylvania, 12 of the 16 congressional seats in Ohio, 9 of the 14 in Michigan, 9 of the 14 in in North Carolina. Uh, and this pattern has maintained itself. You have not seen essentially a single seat change hands in these swing states ever since 2012, with the exception of one seat in North Carolina that Republicans almost got in 2012 and did a pickup in 2014. It explains a lot about why our Congress is so frozen and why control has stayed the same, despite the fact that we've had three very different elections in 2012, 2014, 2016. But the results have not swung accordingly. And you include a map of Pennsylvania. I encourage our listeners to take a look at that because it it really does explain how the state changed. If you go back to previous congressional districts in Pennsylvania's 67 counties, primarily drawn along the county boundaries, that clearly wasn't the case in 2010-2012. And the 7th district in Pennsylvania really epitomizes that. Explain. Yes. Um, the the 7th District looks like a goofy kicking Donald Duck. It is an amazingly drawn district. And I went out and I drove it. Um, and 
you can see, I mean, all of these districts have crazy names, um, and they look really funny. When you get up close and personal and look at them and actually see where one a district ends and the next it begins, there's a rhyme and a reason to just about every single one of those weird and wacky turns. I went out and I drove a, a good part of Pennsylvania's 7th and a, an awful lot of, of Michigan's 14th. And when you do this, you see how the neighborhoods change, how the houses change, how the demographics change whenever these maps uh, take a turn. The technology is so sophisticated. Um, the information the map makers have about uh, voters is so precise. And our partisanship these days is so hardened and predictable that when you know all of that, you can draw really effective lines. And Pennsylvania is a great example. I mean, in 2008, if you compare the congressional elections statewide in Pennsylvania in 2008 and 2012, you can really see the impact of this. In both years, if you add up all the aggregate votes for Democratic candidates for the U.S. House in Pennsylvania, it's about 100,000 more votes for Democrats than Republicans in both years. In 2008, those votes elect 12 Democrats and 7 Republicans. In 2012, it's 13 Republicans and 5 Democrats. That's the significance of how you draw these lines. Another example that you point out in your book in Michigan, and you make this uh, point that you can travel 30 miles from the Pontiac Silverdome to Ford Field and travel through six congressional districts. Mm-hmm. Um, it, is, it, is, it is wild. Um, essentially, what happened in Michigan, uh, there are two ways of gerrymandering, essentially. You can crack, which is taking all of the other side's voters and and try to spread them across as many districts as possible so that they are just an ineffective block in all of those districts. Or there's packing. And by packing, you are trying to draw a district that includes as many of them as possible so that you can then take as many of the surrounding seats as you can. So in Michigan, most of the Democratic base is African-American in the cities of Detroit and Pontiac. So the mapmakers drew the 14th as this wild snake that essentially takes up the core of Detroit and a lot of the poorest neighborhoods there, and then it reaches up in a, in a very sort of convoluted and thin way. You could hit a, a golf ball or throw a Frisbee across the uh, district a bunch of different times, and uh, you know, it's essentially as wide as, as, the, as the road, and then it reaches up and it grabs Pontiac. Um, so the goal there is to, is, to, is to pack as many of the African Americans in Michigan into as few seats as possible, and then they carve up the suburban Republicans around Detroit, um, and they have maximized uh, those into as many districts as they can that elect Republicans with about 55 to 62 percent majorities. Um, Once upon a time, folks would look at that and say, well, you're spreading your votes out a little bit thin. There's a risk 
you know, in a wave year um, of having, if you reach too far and try to take uh, too many seats and spread your own votes out and get greedy about it, maybe you could lose. The trouble is that the data is so good, we know so much about who these voters are, that that is not necessarily a risk anymore. A 55% Republican district is a pretty solid district these days. You saw that in Georgia the other night. Our partisanship is pretty hardened that uh, John Ossoff gets 48% in the runoff. He gets 48% in the election. There are not a lot of minds out there to change. And when that's the case, how you draw these lines is deeply consequential. And yet Chapter 10 of your book, Iowa, you're calling that state the redistricting unicorn. So explain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Iowa has actually come up with a way of drawing districts that is truly nonpartisan. It's perhaps the the only true example of this um, in the country. They actually have a nonpartisan state government panel. These are, are bureaucrats who are respected professionals who are not allowed to use partisan information at all, and they sit down and they draw all of the state legislative districts and all the congressional districts. Um, The politicians can either vote this up or vote it down, um, but the actual drawing does not involve any political information. They are only trying to ensure that communities of interest stay together and that all of the districts are of equal size. Um, and it is amazing. Um, the politicians do not dare mess with the process because independent redistricting and fair elections is something of a civic religion in the state of Iowa. The voters there understand the importance of these lines, and they take it very, very seriously, um, so much so that the politicians of both sides, when they take power – They're always tempted to try to enhance that power and keep it and do what they can. They know that if they try this in the state of Iowa, voters will rebel against them. We could use a lot more of that spirit in other states. And what about the Voting Rights Act and what impact it's had in redistricting? And as you point out in your book, it's actually hurt a number of minority groups. Yeah, I I think it is very complicated. Um, There have been two key redistricting waves that the Republicans have used in order to accrue their current advantages. Um, The wave that I write about in this book is red map after the 2010 census. But there's also a really important part of the story from the 1990s. And the 1991 redistricting process uh, takes part under a new directive in the Voting Rights Act, the reauthorization, which says when you can draw a majority-minority seat, you should um, in order to increase the numbers of African Americans and other minorities in Congress. Um, and this leads to something 
that has often been called the unholy alliance between African Americans in the South and Republicans in the South. Um, most of those seats had been held by Southern white Democrats. Republicans understood this. When Lee Atwater takes over the Republican National Committee in 1989, Atwater had, had run the George H.W. Bush's campaign, had been in South Carolina, that politics for a long time. His mission was to do something about redistricting. So Atwater and a very smart Republican attorney named Ben Ginsburg, um, who we see in voting rights cases all the way up to today from uh, Bush versus Gore and, and many others, um, they reach out to African-American communities in the South and they say, we've got computers, we've got software, we've got map drawers. Let's draw districts that guarantee African-American representation. But it was also good for Republicans, because this packed as many of the Democratic voters into as few districts as possible, and it sort of gave them – it kind of gave the Republicans cover for their gerrymander. They could say, we're not necessarily trying to take more seats for ourselves. We are doing this because we think it's very important to increase the number of African Americans in Congress, um, and indeed – the number of African Americans in Congress uh, soars in the night in the early 1990s to its to its highest level since a Reconstruction era. Uh, but you also begin to see the makings of the Republican Solid South happening, and it's largely due to um, these moves around redistricting. David Daly, clearly we're a year and a half away before the midterm elections. A lot can happen in politics and the political environment. But one mm -hmm. of your conclusions is that uh, the deck is stacked against the Democrats in 2018. I think the map makes it very, very difficult for Democrats to see a path back to power. Um, they only need to win 24 seats in order to take back the House. The question is, where do you find them? Um, if no seats have swung all decade in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, or North Carolina in the direction of the Democratic Party, um, and those are, you know, bluish-purple battleground states. So if you wipe those seats off the table and say it's just as unlikely that you're going to find many fertile targets there, you have to say, where are these seats going to come from? The Democrats have said, well, we're going to look at suburban districts that perhaps moved in our direction in 2016 and try and use Donald Trump, who may not be as popular in those districts, and run against Trump. You just saw the limits of that strategy in Georgia's sixth. Um, so if that strategy doesn't necessarily work, where do you go? Democrats have been less willing in 2017 in these special elections to get involved in Montana, in Kansas, in South Carolina, because they fear that, that their brand is not especially strong there. It's really easy to come in and run a Nancy Pelosi attack ad in these districts, and it's very effective, as we have seen. Um, so the question for for Democrats is how they identify the districts in which they actually have a chance 
who went in. There were 23 districts in 2016 that went for Hillary Clinton but also elected a Republican. So Democrats are focused there. But there are also 13 districts that went for Donald Trump and elected a Democrat. Uh, so it's, 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 it's a very challenging map is, is, the, is the, the political reality for the Democrats. And it will take a comprehensive and creative strategy to uh, try and find a way and get uh, past the uh, structural impediments that uh, face the Democrats. The maps and more details available in your book, the subtitle, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count. And for the full title, I guess they'd have to check it out at their favorite bookseller. (laughs) David Daly, joining us from Brooklyn, New York. Thank you very much for being with us. A pleasure. Thank you for all you do and all C-SPAN does. Thank you. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter. And let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.